Welcome once again to the Doctor's Lounge, broadcast every Thursday morning on America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchak here, your host for this week, alternating weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz. Uh, thank you once again for your listenership. We have passed the three-year mark on the Doctor's Lounge. I think it was June the 12th, uh, 2014 was our first broadcast, and we've come a long way since then. We appreciate your continuing to listen to our message uh, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We support free market solutions for the problems that face our healthcare system. So as we sit here in the midsummer, lazy, crazy, hazy days, uh, the U.S. Congress is thank heaven, on recess, where hopefully they can't do any more damage. Uh, We're getting impatient watching them do their best to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory uh, regarding the appeal, appeal of Obamacare. And quite frankly, all of the dialogue, first on the House bill and then on the Senate bill, has left my brain, and maybe yours too, just a little bit numb a little bit overwhelmed, and leaving me at least sort of searching for a, a, a relevant direction to take the discussion because you know I thought about talking about the Senate version of the bill and and some of the stuff going on. Uh, there is a couple of interesting things going on. I think it's it's intriguing Ted Cruz's uh, recent proposal that uh, as long as an insurance company offers one Obamacare compliant minimum essential benefits option that they should be free to offer uh, options outside of Obamacare. That's interesting. Now, you know, we might be able to say if you like your Obamacare, you can keep it, but at least give uh, you know other options the ability to have life. Uh, beyond that, I'm kind of numb with it all, right? We have two approaches. One says, look, uh, with the election of Donald Trump, the promise was endorsed, made, and, and accepted to repeal Obamacare, period. We have the other approach that says, look, politics is the art of the possible, not the perfect, and a half a loaf of bread is better than none, etc., 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 and that we should accept the limits of reconciliation and settle for Obamacare light, as some people call it, um, you know, some tweaking around the edges as opposed to changing the fundamental approach. That's about as far as I can think about that right now. Because this has just become such a mind-numbing thing, and I don't know how to affect uh, or influence the, the dialogue if you if you try going a full frontal assault talking about this further. So I thought this week we would try to take the, the, the discussion in another direction, and instead of trying to take on the whole thing, let's just take on a piece of it, look, look to current events to see if we can't find something, and I think I did. Uh, and hopefully between the two topics that we have chosen for this week, one to talk about single payer with respect to uh, the young, uh, unfortunate infant Charlie Gard over in the United Kingdom. And if we have time, we may talk a little bit later in the show about uh, some recent data that's come out uh, regarding the CMS programs that uh, penalize hospitals for excessive readmissions based on certain diagnoses, in this particular case, myocardial infarction or heart attack. But let's start with the first topic, which is to talk about young Charlie Gard and his predicament in the United Kingdom. And I want to tie this back to something I was involved with earlier in the year, which was the CNN debate between Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz. 
And for those of you that didn't hear some of those shows earlier in the year, I had the privilege of being invited by CNN to be in the audience and ask a question. In the end, I was denied that privilege. Um, that's fine. So go showbiz. And who knows? It may have been a blessing in disguise. You never know. It, it would have been a high risk, high reward, potentially, uh, event to occur. Uh, but, uh, Bernie was loaded for bear. Uh, I was prepared. I don't know that a confrontation necessarily would have been a good thing or not, especially on national television. That's a little daunting. Um, but, this whole thing with Charlie Gard uh, has sort of brought up some of those issues back because there was a particular uh, audience member who was invited like I was to come ask a question. This was a concerned father uh, by the name of Cole Gelrod who was brought to ask a question regarding his infant daughter. So let's go ahead and replay that and give you a sense of what that was like. Here we go. Welcome back to the CNN debate on the future of Obamacare. Let's turn now to the rise in prescription drug costs. For that, I want to bring in Cole Gelrod. He comes from Denver, Colorado. He's a father of two whose daughter, Juniper, requires medication that would cost $900 a month without Medicaid. Cole? Thank you. My three-year-old daughter was born with an undiagnosed severe heart defect and required a heart transplant when she was only seven months old. Unfortunately for us and families like ours, our employer-provided insurance does not cover the most vital of my daughter's life-saving prescriptions. <clears throat> this luckily hasn't been an unbearable financial burden for my family because of Obamacare and particularly the Medicaid expansion. Senator Cruz, regardless of what happens with health care reform, how do you plan to address the rising costs of prescription drugs? Additionally, how would you like to address a health care system where insurance companies can choose to not cover drugs that people like my daughter need to live? Well, okay, so uh, I'm not going to play Ted Cruz's response to that because what I really want to talk about is Bernie Sanders' position, uh, and most of you probably know this, his position uh, uh, advocating universal health care, Medicare for all, he calls it. So this was this was not, again, full disclosure, I'm going to play something from Bernie Sanders from that night. What I'm about to play you, he did say this evening, it was not in response to Mr. Gelrod's question. It was played earlier in the evening, but I, I again, I, I'm not going to pull a mainstream media stunt here. This is all full disclosure. I don't think it's unreasonable, and I don't think it's a misrepresentation to say that Senator Sanders would respond to this father's question in this manner. Now, if you were in Canada, you know what? You would get the health care that you need. If you were in the UK, France, Germany, Scandinavia, you would get the health care you need as a right of being a citizen in this country. Okay, let's take that apart. Right? If you were a patient in the UK, he listed a number of countries, but listed the United Kingdom, he said that you would get the health care you need as a citizen of that country. So we have an infant child in the United States who got her heart transplant but is now on expensive medication. And this father, rightly so, probably lays awake, sleeps with his eyes. I sure as heck would as a dad myself, uh, worrying about the welfare of his child 
and worrying if he was going to be able to get her the care that she needed on an ongoing basis. Because obviously the heart transplant's just the beginning. It's just a first battle in a long war. So my, my heart is, is with this dad for sure. Bernie would say, and again, I, I played that and it wasn't a direct response to this question, but I'm sure, I don't think it's a misrepresentation, that Bernie would say, well, gosh, if we had Medicare for all, if we had universal health care, your child would get the care they need. And he specifically listed the United Kingdom where a – I don't want to say a similar infant, but a child with a big medical problem. I think probably far bigger than this, this, uh, this daughter that, uh, that, that got the heart transplant. Um, but, uh, but Charlie Gard is in a tough bind. Um, he has an illness for which there is no known cure. Uh, and, but I think there are enough similarities for me to draw this parallel. So let me see if I can do that. So let's talk about who Charlie Gard is. Charlie Gard's a young infant boy who was born August 4th, 2016. And as I understand it from the research that I have done to prepare for this broadcast, initially he was fine. And then within a month or two, things started to happen to make it clear that things were wrong. That something wasn't right, uh, and he was given medical care. He had a workup, uh, and was discovered to have a diagnosis, a profoundly rare diagnosis called mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. Now, what is that? Well, to understand that, I need to take you back to uh, what's a nightmare in just about everybody's lives called high school biology class. When you were in high school biology class, maybe even junior high school biology class, maybe more than once, uh, you were subjected to learning the anatomy of a cell. And you learned about all this stuff, right? There was the nucleus, there was the cytoplasm, there was the cell membrane, then there was a whole list of other stuff that was hellish to memorize. Uh, and once you took the test, you forgot about it forever, unless you're in a job like mine where it's your job to sort of know this stuff. So one of those structures that the vast majority of you uh, learned for the test and then forgot was a structure called the mitochondria. So what is a mitochondrion? Well, it is the energy source of a cell. Uh, it is the battery in the electric car. It is the gas tank in the engine in a gas-powered car. Uh, it is the thing from which all energy for cellular activity is derived. Uh, it's the power source, if you will. And it turns out that mitochondria have their own DNA, right? You remember from the nightmare of biology class, most of the cell DNA is in the nucleus. But it turns out that the mitochondria has, what, 36 genes of its own that are independently inherited, transmitted to subsequent generations. And so they can undergo genetic mutations independent of the rest of your DNA. Uh, it turns out, according to just some primitive research, very, very extremely rare. A couple of reports say only 16 children have ever been documented with this. Um, but the problem is that as soon as uh, it, your mitochondria function at a very, very low level because of a genetic defect in the mitochondrial DNA, and so they're only, they're not able to put out nearly as much energy as a person needs to live. So tissues that have high energy consumption, muscles, brain, liver, um, don't do well. So your muscles get weak, 
your diaphragm gets weak, you can't breathe, you got to go on a ventilator, um, your brain can't function, uh, eventually it undergoes structural damage, uh, and the liver can be affected as well. And so it's, it's either fatal, uh, starting in infancy, uh, you know, there's been some documented folks of, uh, you know, cases of, of folks living longer. But unfortunately, Charlie is in a bad way, and apparently he's got a lot of brain damage. And what has happened in recent weeks um, is that earlier this year, um, his doctors uh, petitioned the courts, um, the family division of the High Court of England and Wales uh, were petitioned that Charlie should be allowed to die. And the court ruled in favor of the hospital and the caregivers uh, that Charlie should be allowed to die by the withdrawal of life support. Uh, the parents appealed the ruling. Uh, the ruling was upheld um, the, um, at the UK Supreme Court. Uh, a final legal appeal was made to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, and they refused to hear the case, saying that they had nothing to add. Now, while this was all going on, Charlie's parents, being, I think, pretty resourceful, uh, were able to crowdsource, do a GoFundMe campaign, and raise $1.7 million on their own. We'll pick this up next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host this week. Thanks so much for listening once again. Uh, we are talking this week about something different, right? We're getting away from Obamacare repeal. What's the House doing? What's the Senate doing? They're on recess I decided we're going to take a recess from that particular conversation and take this in a different but related direction. Uh, we all know that as part of the acknowledged implosion of Obamacare that folks on the big government side of this issue say, well, Obamacare is failing because it didn't go far enough. Right? We need a public option. We need single payer. We need Medicare for all. 
and a particular case of a young child named Charlie Gard in the United Kingdom where, of course, they have the National Health Service, which is a single-payer system, right? This would be Bernie Sanders' dream, probably Barack Obama's dream, Don Berwick's dream. Lots of folks think this is truly the way to go. There is this young child, Charlie Gard, and we're talking about his dilemma, his predicament, and drawing some parallels between that and um, one of the patients or patient's parents who was allowed to ask a question during a CNN debate back in February about their child, who in much better shape than Charlie Gard, but uh, with a heart transplant. But the question was, how do you What's the right way for society to respond to, in this particular case, young children, infants with severe illnesses that will be very expensive to take care of? What's the response of a single-payer system to that? So we're talking about the details of of Charlie Gard's predicament. So young Charlie Gard, he is uh, coming up on his first birthday, which will be August 1st, 2017, uh, just past his 11-month birthday, July 4th. And talking about his uh, plight with a condition called mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome, which in a nutshell is a devastating disease uh, that is likely to take his life as an infant regardless of what is done. But we have a real dilemma here in how the National Health Service has responded to this because they have decided that Charlie must die. Um, that life support will be withdrawn. Uh, you know, his, his muscles are too weak for him to breathe on his own. And so, you know, once they turn the ventilator off, pull the plug, if you will, uh, the odds of his surviving, I would guess, more than a few hours with a weak diaphragm, um, you know, not to mention a badly damaged brain and whatnot, possibly liver as well, um, that, that his prognosis is, is extremely poor. Even now, you, you pull the plug and I, I think his death is inevitable. And the, uh, the, the High Court of England, the Family Division of the High Court of England initially ruled on the 11th of April that uh, Charlie should be allowed to die. Uh, that appeal was taken to the uh, UK Supreme Court, which upheld the lower court's ruling. Uh, a final legal appeal was made to the European Court of Human Rights, who refused to hear the case. And that's where we kind of left the story at the end of the last segment. Uh, there is, of course, more to the story, and the, the details continue to unfold even as we speak. Um, the The plug was supposed to be pulled this past weekend. Uh, they got, I guess, a stay of execution, if you will. Uh, and as far as we know, at this point, at the time we're doing this broadcast, he's still alive. Um, but uh, that's not going to last long. Now, the, the bigger details to to emphasize is, number one, the parents raised $1.7 million to pay for Charlie's care. Did a GoFundMe thing. You know, certainly, you know, to be able to raise that kind of money, I think, is a, a an interesting uh, reflection of public opinion on this. Um, but in spite of the fact that the money is available, the, 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 the courts have refused to allow him to survive. There are some other things that have happened as well. Um, Donald Trump tweeted that that child was welcome in the United States and a hospital here on our side of the pond has volunteered to take care of Charlie for free. Now, no one's identified that hospital yet, and I will resist 
the temptation to conjecture in public as to why that is. But there is a hospital here in the States somewhere that has offered to take care of Charlie. Uh, in addition, um, the Vatican, right, the Bambino Gesù Hospital in Rome, uh, has offered to uh, provide care to Charlie. And the UK has refused both of those offers. All three of those offers, if you count Trump's as separate. So we have at least two offers to care for the child for free, and we have parents who have raised $1.7 million to continue their child's care. And in spite of that, the UK has refused. Now, this baffles me because, you know, this, this goes even beyond the conversation we normally have about single payer, single payer, right? We say single payer will lead to rationing, right? Because the advocates of single payer say, well, resources are limited, right? You read any article, and I've got one here written by one Ezekiel Emanuel, and we're going to talk about that if you know who he is, about limited resources in healthcare. Scarcity is the mother of allocation, right? That's the opening sentence. Of this. So, you know, single payer systems presume a scarcity of resources and say that things must be rationed. And in this particular case, there is no scarcity of resources. Right? There is a, a glut of resources here. We got $1.7 million in cash sitting in the bank somewhere. We have a, an American hospital willing to take care of this child for free. We have an Italian hospital willing to take care of this child for free. Uh, you know, 1.7 million is more than enough money to care for that child for a year. If you look up statistics, it costs about $1.2 million to care for a heart transplant in the United States, and that's a 2014 statistic, so that number may be up a bit. But the bottom line is $1.7 million would probably cover almost, if not all, of the bill for a year for young Charlie. And in spite of that... The high courts in the UK have decided this child must die. And I am baffled as to why this would be. And I think it I, – I guess I'm not entirely baffled. I'm going to, of course, give you my theory on this. But I think it has to do with the psychology of what happens when you put folks in charge of a single-payer system and they get used to making these judgments on God's behalf. And I, I, I don't know what that does to you psychologically, but I think this is some insights that a judge has been empowered to decide against the will of this child's parents that this child needs to quote-unquote die with dignity – as opposed to getting treated. And apparently, even the British Prime Minister has voiced her support for this decision. And apparently, uh, he, she and Donald Trump may or may not discuss this at the upcoming summit over in Europe. Um, but it, it, is, it is heartbreaking to read this stuff. I mean, all they have to do is 
say yes to let an ambulance back up to their emergency room entrance, take this child and put him on a portable ventilator, wheel him to the ambulance, and wave goodbye. Right? The rest is paid for. And so it, it, it's, it, it blows my mind. And there are, there are other experts here. I've got some quotes. This is just kind of, uh, you know, here's a British professor, Robert Winston, well-known fertility expert, says, these interferences from the Vatican and from Donald Trump seem to me to be extremely unhelpful and very cruel, actually. Okay, I, I don't get how those would be cruel. Um, he said Wednesday on Good Morning Britain that he does not believe the doctors in London are trying to assert authority, but rather, quote, they're trying to make an ethical decision based on the judgment of what they know, and ultimately, I think we have to respect what their knowledge is. If they say this mutation is so severe that really this is something that would be even more cruel to have this child travel, that is something which I think one really has to respect. Really? Really? What about respect for the parents? What about respect for their wishes and their intentions? I, I think this is – and then, of course, he waffles and says, well, the parents should be allowed to make that decision. But that's not really what he said. So you know, this is a this is a very I, this uh, I think this says a lot about the psychology of folks who are in this position to make these decisions. That even in the face of having the funding available, you know, there's a lot of you know we're going to talk in the next segment about the response on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the issue here in terms of what folks are saying, uh, what you know the left and progressive and big government folks are saying versus what uh, folks who favor smaller smaller government are saying. Um, but it, it 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 is extremely frightening to me that we could allow something like this to happen, and this circles back. Right, because this is why I started this whole thing with the CNN segment, and started this with you know an appropriately concerned father. I think that you know any any parent would identify with uh, you know one Cole Gelrod um, being concerned about his daughter here in the United States who had a heart transplant. But to me, it is a very frightening and slippery slope because if you have one person. Or a group of persons who is on a panel uh, who can look at cases like this and decide, regardless of money, apparently, right? That's the thing that makes this so crazy is that this is not even about money anymore. This isn't about what Ezekiel Emanuel talks about with his complete live system, which we will get into. Um, that 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 you know that, that the resources aren't appropriately allocated that society would benefit from some other allocation of resources, right? That's what the conversation generally devolves down to is to which life is more worthy with limited funds. This doesn't even have anything to do with that because the money is there. It's there three times over. We have two hospitals willing to do it for free, and they got $1.7 million in the bank, which easily covers the first year of care. And yet these folks say, no. No, I and, and it's. I think they might be embarrassed. Maybe I don't know. I'm guessing. I'm sort of ad libbing this. Maybe they're embarrassed that, that you know the whole world has come up and said, "No, you're wrong. We'll 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 take this problem out of your hands." It's kind of like they're fired, right? If they make a decision, say, "No, we think this child must die," and Italy says, "No, no, we'll take him." The United States says, "No, no, we'll take him," and a gazillion people who gave them money on the GoFundMe campaign says, "No, no, no, no we'll pay for it. If you want, we will." You know that that may be a little bit. I don't know, 
kind of like you've been second guessed. You know, you've been you've been pulled from the game. You know, you were the starting pitcher, but you know, you didn't do so well. So here comes the relief. We got an Italian hospital, American hospital, and a zillion people that gave money. All of whom say you, you know, on the family division of the High Court of England um, or the UK Supreme Court, you guys were wrong. And I'm not sure they can take that. Um, you are listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Karuchak here, your host for this week. Thanks very much for sticking around. We are talking about a very interesting, very emotional uh, topic here. We're talking about the the plight of young Charlie Gard, uh, an infant who has yet to reach his first birthday and well might not uh, because of a rare disease that he has called mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. And as if having that disease isn't bad enough for both child and parents, uh, they are all embroiled in a worldwide controversy regarding the response of the National Health Service, because they live in Britain, um, the National Health Service regarding their child's condition and their decision to enforce the withdrawal of life support in spite of the fact that there are there is a triple redundancy uh, in their ability to get this paid for. They've raised $1.7 million on GoFundMe and a hospital in Rome and a hospital somewhere in America uh, all have offered to uh, take care of this child for free for as long as that takes. Uh, and yet in spite of that, in spite of having three ways out of this dilemma, uh, the National Health Service uh, court rulings, first by the Family Division of the High Court of England and then by the England and the UK Supreme Court have said no, we don't care if you've got two hospitals willing to take care of you. We don't care if you have the money to have your child transported out of Britain uh, and cared for somewhere else uh, on GoFundMe money. Uh, we have decided on behalf of God that your child must die. That is the essence of this. And we try to tie this back to uh, a concerned father who talked on CNN uh, in a debate and said, I have a daughter with a heart transplant not nearly as bad as this myocardial DNA depletion syndrome, but significant nonetheless. Um, and, you know, what if, 
you know, Obamacare gets repealed and the Medicaid expansion withdrawn and my daughter, you know, we can't afford the medicines for my daughter anymore. Uh, and so I'm trying to draw parallels between those two. And so we will continue that. There are certainly differences, and I don't mean to suggest that they're uh, identical. Uh, I do mean to suggest that there are similarities that make this discussion relevant for the United States in the context of health care reform, uh, and that's where we're going next. So let's let's talk a little bit more about what's going on in the United States because, hey, you might say, look, well, that's the, that's the United Kingdom. Um, you know, that would never happen here. You know, that's an isolated incident. You know, what do you do in Kurochek? This is, you're sensationalizing a, an isolated story. This stuff doesn't happen every day. What are you talking about? Well, let's, let's delve into that a little bit. Um, one of the major architects of Obamacare, White House advisor, was one Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel. Um, and if you go on his website, the homepage on the website is sort of um, reflective of how the the intellectual elite of this country regards themselves. Uh, they have a quote in here, Zeke Emanuel, they're all on nickname bases, Zeke Emanuel is a force of nature. A for like what? The wind, the rain, the stars, the planets, the universe? I mean, he's, he's right up there with God, I suppose. Um, but he has authored, and remember, this guy is a major advisor to the Obama White House and a key architect of the Affordable Care Act. So this is not some crazy guy on the fringes, right? If, if you're knowledgeable, you know this guy's name, and you and you and you you know that he was a big player in in the creation of Obamacare. Where is he coming from? Well, he authored something called the Complete Lives System. Sounds like a benign enough name, right? Complete. Yeah, we all want complete lives, right? I mean, that's one thing that big government people are very good at is to choose language carefully to cloak uh, the real purpose of what they're doing. So what is the complete life system? Well, the complete lives system is an approach to allocating scarce resources within healthcare. And, uh, you know, this, the, the key article from the Department of Ethics, um, uh, you know, the National Institutes of Health, uh, you know, published in 2009 in The Lancet, entitled Principles for Allocation of Scarce Medical Interventions. And they go to compare a variety of sort of generic approaches. You know, you know, how do you allocate limited resources? Well, you could do a lottery. That has advantages or disadvantages. You can do first come, first serve. You can do sickest first. You can do youngest first. Uh, you know, save the most lives. And there's a bunch of sort of generic approaches. And then they say, well, we've sort of combined the best of all of these into something called the complete life system. But let's look at this. Let's look at this article a little bit. Principles for allocation of scarce medical interventions. The, the introductory paragraphs. I'm reading from the article. Allocation of scarce medical interventions is a perennial challenge. During the 1940s, an expert committee allocated, without any public input, the then-novel drug penicillin to American soldiers ahead of civilians using expected efficacy and speed of return to duty as, as criteria. In other words, during World War II, we got to get sick soldiers well. That's more important. We need to get them back to the battlefield. That's more important than taking care of civilians back home. So penicillin, which was then brand new and hard and expensive to make, you get the idea. During the 1960s, Committees in Seattle allocated scarce dialysis machines using prognosis, current health, social worth, uh, and dependence as criteria. 
How can scarce medical interventions be allocated justly? This paper identifies and evaluates eight simple principles that have been um, uh, got lost that have been suggested. Okay, so let's go back and look at their examples for a minute and 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 see what we can learn from those. Well, let's see, penicillin. Yeah, in the 1940s, penicillin was hard to find, expensive to produce. Heck, it had just been discovered a few years before. Um, but what happened during between the 1940s and the 1970s when everything in medicine was free market? There weren't big insurance companies or third-party payers. Well, penicillin be- went from being exotic and expensive to dirt cheap and widely available. And, you know, aside from prescription, I mean, penicillin doesn't cost anything now. So it went from being scarce and expensive to dirt cheap and everywhere. How interesting is that? How about dialysis? Same thing. Uh, you know, dialysis in the 1960s was impossible to get. It was very expensive and had to be allocated. Now, dialysis isn't cheap now, but it's a whole lot less expensive and a whole lot more available now than it was back in the 1960s. Right, we've come up with other things. Right, that was hemodialysis. Now we have peritoneal dialysis. Now we have kidney transplants. Right, all sorts of stuff came up to treat renal failure, to treat kidney failure. Um, did those come because the government centrally managed all this? No, it came because there was enough free market in medicine back then, so that the scarcity went away. And that's my reply to the examples in the beginning of this article is, you know, classically they shoot themselves in the foot before they get to the bottom of the second paragraph because the examples they use are both things that used to be expensive and hard to get and are now far cheaper, especially in the case of penicillin, because there was economic incentive out there for folks to produce this stuff because of the demand and because of the prices that they could get in a free market. How interesting is that? Well, uh, this is a long article and I'm not going to drag you through any more of it except – to go to the part that addresses how you allocate – I'm flipping pages here to find my next highlighted part. Here we go. How do you allocate care to infants that are sick? All right. We got two we're talking about here. One, the daughter of the dad who was on the CNN debate in February and the other, young Charlie Gard. So what does he say? Well, he says here's, – here's paragraph. Consideration of the importance of the complete life system also supports modifying the youngest first principle. What's the youngest first principle? It's the younger you are, the more worthy you are of treatment because you have more lives ahead of you, right? One of the, one of the basics of rationing of care in a single payer system is that the older you are, the less worthy you are of care because the less longer you're going to live anyway. Right. So if you're 80 years old and you need a total hip, well, you're going to be dead in a few years anyway. Why would we spend all that money? If you're 50 years old and you need a total hip, well, that's a better deal for society because presumably at age 50, assuming you don't have any other medical problems that would shorten your life, you're more worthy of care. So in, if you just take that principle by itself, the younger you are, the more lives you have ahead of you. So the more point it is to, for society to invest in your care, right? This is no longer about the individual. No longer about the individual. This is all about society in this paradigm. So, uh, consideration of the importance of complete lives, complete life system, also supports modifying the youngest first principle by prioritizing adolescents and young adults over infants. Now, if you want to see this graphically, go to your computer, pull up Google, and type in Ezekiel Emanuel, the Reaper Curve is what they call it in reference to the Grim Reaper, the Reaper Curve. 
On the x-axis is age, and on the y-axis is this nebulous, no-units measurement called probability of receiving an intervention. In other words, the probability that you're worthy of care. And the, the graph starts very, very low. So newborns are actually less worthy of care than folks in their 60s and 70s, and the graph only goes to 75. But the lowest point on this graph is birth. So under the complete live system, if you're born with a big problem, the odds are very good that the courts or the panels or whoever, just like in the UK, just like with young Charlie Gard, are going to look and go, nah, I don't think your child's worthy of that. So you know what happens to uh, Cole Gelrod's young daughter under those situations? Well, some of the news is good, some of the news is bad. I mean, it, it, it turns out that the, the, the fifth year survival for infant and young child heart transplants is somewhere around 50%, 54%. That's pretty good. That's better than I expected before I did the research. The problem is to get you from birth to age 15 years is probably going to, you know, take several million dollars to get you there, right? You know, it's going to cost you $1.2 million in the first year. That's, you know, number two, three years old is probably 1.5, 1.6 million the first year and probably a couple hundred thousand dollars per year for all of your medicines. So, it is entirely possible that, you know, that, that based on Ezekiel Emanuel's reaper curve, that a newborn with a bad medical problem at birth, surely, you know, myocardial DNA depletion syndrome for sure, but even a heart defect that requires a transplant, uh, you know, it's possible that Mr. Gelrod, I can't say for sure, of course, and I don't, again, Needing a heart transplant is not as dire as this mitochondrial problem, but it is entirely possible that under the right circumstances that this father's young daughter um, wouldn't be in a position to worry about getting her medicines because she would have been denied the transplant in the first place. Entirely possible. And that's exactly what um, you know Ezekiel Emanuel says. Infants, in contrast to adolescents, have not yet received any societal investments, right? Adolescents have received substantial education and parental care, invested investments that would be wasted without medical therapy. Infants, by contrast, have not received any investments. So the idea is, you know, it's like buy low, sell high, right? I mean, if if you look at an investment, if you look at a, a sick infant, a, a desperately ill infant, uh, you might say, you know what? We're not going to put any money into this. Just let them die. Horrible. So that's what we're up against. So in the last segment, looks like I'm going to burn this whole thing up on one topic. Uh, we're going to look at some of the reactions in the press, uh, and we will get to that uh, shortly. Um, stick around. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak here on America's Web Radio, bringing you the best in healthcare policy chat radio every Thursday morning. Uh, we are sponsored by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. We are a 4-4-501c3 organization. Uh, we th- survive only through your financial generosity and donations. So if you like what you hear, um, please go to www.d4pcfoundation.org, uh, D, the numeral 4, pcfoundation.org, and please give generously. No donation is too small, and certainly no donation is too large, of course. But we thank you for your time listening to the program. We, we also thank you in advance for your financial support because this stuff doesn't happen uh, without it. Uh, we, uh, the board of the Observation Care Foundation, we donate our time. Uh, we don't get paid to do these radio shows or any of the other things that we do. Um, but there are expenses beyond just us donating our time. And without your financial support, this stuff doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so please give generously if you possibly can. Thank you. We are continuing the discussion here as we enter segment four uh, of uh, what happens when single-payer systems are confronted with sick babies. Um, and that can obviously generalize to you know, any sort of uh, you know, human being with a, a difficult and expensive uh, and ethically challenging care situation. And we have been talking about young Charlie Gard. We've been talking about his his terrible prognosis with a mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome that renders his muscles unable to function, his brain unable to function, uh, at least possibly his liver. Don't know the details of exactly uh, the details at that level. But uh, the point is he's on a ventilator. His odds of ever getting off are essentially zero. Uh, you know, there's a lot of conjecture out there as to whether he feels pain or not uh, no way of knowing I think um, you know it, we we talk about this at a distance but I will acknowledge up front without actually getting to see this child and and you know the folks you know at this hospital uh, that have petitioned um, uh, the uh, the court uh, in Britain to withdraw uh, life support. Uh, you know, they, they, they know this child better than we do, um, but certainly not as well as his parents do. But, uh, you know, they have petitioned the, uh, the UK courts and have won, um, to be able to withdraw life support. To my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet, but apparently it's kind of an any day now, sort of day to day, potentially hour to hour sort of thing. 
Um, and we've been talking about how, you know, you know, this could happen in this country if we ever got to single payer and that, you know, there is a philosophy out there called the complete live system, uh, created by one Ezekiel Emanuel, who is a major architect in Obamacare. So in terms of, uh, the folks who would design a single payer system in this country, you know, he would be a prominent player and, and likely so would this philosophy, which generally says that infants, with severe diseases are probably not worthy of care um, because it doesn't make sense for society to make the investment. So as we move along in this topic, and God knows I could talk about this all day, but we're going to – I think the next thing I'm going to do here is read parts of the judge's ruling uh, to to sort of give you an insight as to what their thought processes uh, were and – we're going to go down – you know what? Okay, I found it. I found it. I'm scrolling up and down the screen here trying to find it. Okay, here we go. So this is – there's a lot of introductory stuff there that doesn't say very much, um, but uh, here we go. So when Chris – and that's Charlie's father. When Chris started his evidence, he pre- he described himself as, quote, Charlie's proud father. Uh, I am – in no doubt at all that he and Connie are Charlie's proud parents. The duty with which I am now charged is to decide, according to well-laid-down legal principles, what is in Charlie's best interest. Here we go. This is the meaty part. Some people may ask why the court has any function in this process. Yeah. Why the court has any function in this process? Why can the parents not make this decision on their own? Fair question. Here's the answer. The answer is that although the parents have parental responsibility, overriding control is vested in the court exercising its independent and objective judgment in the child's best interests. What does that mean? That means the parents have responsibilities but no rights. And what's missing from that statement? Here's what's missing from that statement. Anybody? Wait for it. The money part. Right? This is even worse than the typical single payer conversation we have. Right? There's no money involved here. This isn't a allocation of limited resources question. This isn't even what was in the uh, paper written by Ezekiel Emanuel that we reviewed in the last segment. This isn't about how to allocate limited resources. Resources aren't even an issue here. We talked about that, right? The parents have the means to pay for this three times over. We got two hospitals each, which will do it for free. Plus, they got one point seven million dollars in the bank. None of that's brought up. You know why? Because it doesn't matter to these folks. It doesn't matter to the people that have found themselves in the position to render judgment. They're rendering judgment for judgment's own sake, and that is a really, really frightening, slippery slope to set up, right? You know, and you say, well, this is an extreme example. This is a disease that has no chance of being cured. Well, okay. How, how you know, when, when does it, there's, there's no, there's no check and balance in this. I mean, heck, you know, you could say this about a child who needs a heart transplant, right? Like we talked about in the CNN debate. You could say this about a child with Down syndrome. You could say this about a child, well, up until a few years ago, you could say this to somebody with cystic fibrosis. I mean, where does it stop? That's the part that's frightening is there's there's no criteria here, right? He goes on the next paragraph to say the relevant legal principles 
which guide the exercise of my jurisdiction, right? This is the judge writing, right? The relevant legal principles which guide the exercise of my jurisdiction are well settled. Really? Reading on. It is important that I stress that I am not applying a subjective test. I am not saying what I would do in a given situation, but I'm applying the law. Okay, that reminds me of certain biblical figures. We'll leave that alone. Uh, and then he goes to um, say in Wyatt versus Portsmouth. So we've got a we've got a legal precedent here, right? We're familiar with that in America. Fine. So there's a case Wyatt versus Portsmouth National Health Service Trust. Right? It's a 2005 case. He says in this case, the Court of Appeal set out what it referred to as the intellectual milestones for a judge making a decision of the kind with which I am faced today. Here's a quote from that ruling in 2005. In our judgment, the intellectual milestones for the judge in a case such as the present are therefore simple, although the ultimate decision will frequently be extremely difficult. The judge must decide what's in the child's best interest. In making that decision, the welfare of the child is paramount, and the judge must look at the question from an assumed point of view of the child. There is a strong presumption in favor of a course of action which will prolong life, but that presumption is not irrebuttable. The term best interest of the child encompasses medical, emotional, and all other welfare issues. Okay, so what does that say? Well, I went back and looked at that Wyatt versus Portsmouth NHS Trust decision in 2005, and it was not about actively turning off the ventilator. It was a do-not-resuscitate decision, and that's all. Uh, and it turns out, ironically, that the, the child involved in Wyatt versus Portsmouth NHS is still alive. And it turns out in this article, which is in the Daily Mirror in, from London, which is putting out this, this, this text of the ruling, it turns out there's two comments at the bottom of this article. One of them is from Wyatt's father, one Darren Wyatt who says, my heart goes out to the parents and, of course, poor little baby Charlie. Uh, I've been in a similar situation myself with my daughter, Charlotte Wyatt. Um, and, you know, We were in a situation we don't really understand, but I carried on fighting for justice. And now Charlotte is a lot older. Uh, that means she's still alive after 12 years and does have the quality of life that the doctor said she wouldn't have. Uh, skipping to the end. So I say to the parents of Charlie Gard, carry on and fight for justice like I did. God bless. So the, uh, the, the, the case of the legal precedent that this judge falls upon not only isn't applicable, but the dad involved in that case has basically thumbed his nose at the judge rendering this decision with 12 years of historical perspective. Right, This is a 2005 case. It's 12 years ago. And... Here we are, you know, she hasn't had to be resuscitated, thank heaven, but <laughs> here we are, uh, you know, an interesting, interesting irony. So let's look at some other things here, right? we got some other articles. What other response is going on in the media about this stuff? Well, i got, what, two and a half minutes left? Let's go over a couple things. One is CNN's got an article out um, that was on their website written by one um, Dr. Robert Klitzman. Dr. Robert Klitzman is a professor of psychiatry and the director of the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia University, author of The Ethics Police, The Struggle to Make Human Research Safe. What does he have to say about it? The article is called What Charlie Gard 
it teaches us what the trolley guard case teaches us about life and death. So, yes, go on, good Professor Klitzman, and, and tell me, as a doctor with a mere 23 years of experience, some of it with life and death, uh, tell me what you got here. As a psychiatrist, how many terminally ill patients have you treated? Probably not very many. Uh, so here we go. Um, sometimes death is inevitable. Futility is among the most difficult concepts in medicine to grasp and accept. The fact that at a certain point doctors cannot eliminate or reduce disease and the prospect of death becomes inevitable. Really? No, that's really not quite true at all. We grasp it pretty well. Um, you know, we're forced to accept it. Uh, so, no, I'd say that's totally wrong. Um, this notion is hard for both doctors and patients. A physician I know refers to futility as the F word. Oh, great. Uh, when they can no longer prevent the onslaught of death, many doctors feel they have somehow failed. Well, okay, that may be one point that he gets right because uh, there, there, there's no question that when it comes to death, we're sore losers. But guess what? It's our job to be sore losers. That's the whole point. If I'm a patient, I don't want my doctor to be a graceful loser regarding death or, or any form of failure. Sorry. Um, that makes you a crappy doc. And what is this phrase, the onslaught of death? Uh, death doesn't come as an onslaught. Death, death comes as a thief in the night. Death sneaks up on you. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, in, in the experiences that I've had with, with death in my patients, uh, and in the death of my father years ago, uh, you know, it, it doesn't come as a, as a, as an onslaught where you can see it coming a mile away and you know when it's actually going to happen. Uh, it sneaks up on you. It's a thief in the night. So it suggests anything else is ridiculous. Ah, okay, I could go on and on and on. Uh, you know, I, I wish, uh, you know, we're, we're about 10 seconds left, so I'm going to stop. Maybe we'll do some more in a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the America's Broadcast Network.